Some song, a song that just pumps me up. Great song selection, Keith. Uh, Keith chose songs that had to do with the sermon this morning. If you've noticed, they all had to do with covenant relationship. And I really appreciate that, uh, setting our minds toward that. And uh, uh, the sermon, I hope, will, will be a capstone to what we've begun. Uh, mixing up the order a little bit. The scripture reading will come in just a moment. Uh, yes, we're being transient like the congregation right now. We've got people uh, coming and going from foreign fields. We've got people that are leaving yesterday, as early as yesterday and today, for, for camp down at Fort Hill. And uh, a lot of young people are already there and some of our servants. Uh, many are leaving after church today. And so um, I think that's when we're at our best, though, don't you? I think we're at our best when we're uh, collectively focused on, on certain works that are, that are very needful, that are critical even to our faith or the faith of others. Camp is one of those works. So I want to pray uh, for those people this week. I want to encourage you to pray for all those at camp that the young people at one of the, the most important weeks of their life, according to young people in the church, one of the most important weeks of their life that, that the teachers there um, and the speakers can have an influence, that the counselors can, can counsel well uh, beyond just making sure they go to bed at a certain time. There are many conversations that are held uh, throughout the day and in the, in the wee morning hours that affect change in people's lives. So it's an it's a important week. Uh, keep Mike Weaver in your prayers too. It's his first year there. He'll be the night watchman, and uh, he'll need your prayers too, amongst some others who are going to be going for the first time. Uh, so it's a great week. I thank Jeff for his heartfelt prayer. Uh, very short and sweet and just to the point what we needed. Thank you. To put our requests before God and even our sinfulness before God and ask for His forgiveness. Um, the book of Hosea is what we're going to talk about today. That's where we are in our readings. With all this coming in and out, uh, maybe you're one who has lost track of the daily reading schedule that you started out at the beginning of the year on. We've said all along, that's okay. We provide weekends for you to catch up if you can. But even if you get off track, I want to encourage you every so often to come back in. We're providing entrance ramps, as it were, to come back in along the stream of reading. And this week in particular is a very good time for you. I'm going to give you a good jump start with the sermon on what this book is about. I think that if you listen closely today to the message of the book and then go and read the details of the book of Hosea the prophet, that this book will become perhaps one of your favorite Bible books like it has mine. I find oftentimes that the current book that I'm studying becomes my new favorite Bible book. But this one's very special. This one's unlike a lot of the other Bible books in the way that God presents Himself. And this one is, is life-changing in the sense that when you read it, you cannot help but make application to yourself and uh, get lost in the book. And so pretty much the whole week, I think we got Isaiah 11 and 12 for tomorrow slated. Then we begin into Hosea and then into the following week, there's 14 chapters. 
So I want to encourage you, even if you have not been a part of the readings, to, to jump in this week, get a schedule out in the foyer, or get online on our website, and uh, you can get a schedule, you can sign up for daily text reminders of the chapters to read there. So thank you to all of you who have um, prepared our minds before the Lord to this point today. And now let's take a look at what happens uh, when we uh, delve deeper into God's Word in this book. We're going to learn today through the prophet Hosea. I'll call him Hosea, Hosea, Hashia, Hasia. There's all different kinds of ways to pronounce it. Sometimes I even go back and forth. So if you hear that difference, it's not your ears. It's actually me saying Hosea one time or Hosea another time. Um, when, we, when we take a look at this book, what we're going to see is that, that when we sin against God, we're not just sinning against a great king. We're not just sinning against the Almighty God or rejecting Him. We're actually committing adultery and breaking the heart of a God who has established a marriage covenant with His people. Now, for those who are outside of the Lord, He's calling them into this marriage covenant where, where they both can be known and know God, their Creator and Maker. But to those within, it's very special because it's a call to us never, never to quit the relationship that we have with God. We're going to see uh, God make attempts through Hosea, through Isaiah, through Ezekiel, through Micah, through Amos. We're going to see that not all today, but as you do these readings... God weaving this message in through all the prophets. He indicts them of their sinfulness. Yes, He, he exposes it. It's, it's uncomfortable. It's awkward. And yet it has to be brought out to the forefront of, of the relationship. The problem has to be dealt with. So He indicts them of their sinfulness. He calls them to repentance. He calls them to confession, but He also reminds them of what they're missing when they forsake Him as their true husband, their true bridegroom. And even though they go far, far away, even though they go so far away that God's outstretched hand is retracted for a time, and He gives them over to their lovers, he still leaves the door open. He still leaves the light on. He still promises them that He will not forget them or forsake them. And what He does with Hosea is incredible. It's unlike what He does with any other prophet to this extent. Now, He's used prophets before to visually illustrate the messages that He wants to preach. But this one requires Hosea to embody the pain that God is experiencing with His people leaving Him. He's actually going to live the life of heartbreak so that He can fully reveal to its deepest extent God's words to His people and His call to them to come back. So we're going to learn three things, three main things from this book. We're going to learn our relationship with God is like a marriage. We're going to learn that our relationship with God is like a bad marriage. 
And we're going to learn how far God is willing to go to take us back and bring us back to Himself through the true bridegroom. James Boyce, in his publication on Jose, calls it, calls chapter 3. There's five verses in chapter 3. He calls chapter 3 the greatest chapter in the Bible. Now that makes you step back and really look at this. I'm going to have Harold read this for us with you. Turn to Hosea chapter 3 and see why this writer calls chapter 3 the greatest chapter in the Bible. Hosea chapter 3. Then the Lord said to me, Go again, love a woman who is loved by a lover and is committing adultery, just like the love of the Lord for the children of Israel, who look to other gods and love the raisin cakes of the pagans. So I bought her for myself for fifteen shekels of silver and one and a half omers of barley. And I said to her, you shall stay with me many days. You shall not play the harlot, nor shall you have a man. So too will I be toward you. For the children of Israel shall abide many days without a king or prince, without sacrifice or sacred pillar, without ephod or teraphim. Afterward, the children of Israel shall return and seek the Lord their God and David their king. They shall fear the Lord and his goodness in the latter days. So what we have here is an abridged version of the Gospel of Jesus Christ. Very abridged. Five verses. But there's an awful lot in here. So let's go back and take a look at the, at the book from its beginning. Jehovah presents Himself to us as a true King, as a righteous Judge, as the Almighty Creator of all things, as a Redeemer of sin, as a loving Father. But yet in all those different ways through which we can peer into His nature and to, to come to know something about Him, if we do not understand Him as our husband, we will not be able to understand the depth of the love that God wants with us. He wants to share that with us. And so this book is, is going to present that. We see... This same language brought out in various places in the Scripture. If you're taking notes, Jeremiah chapters 2 through 4, Ezekiel chapter 16, Isaiah 54, some of the parables of Jesus about the bridegroom and the wedding feast. We see it in the Apostle Paul's writing in Ephesians chapter 5, where he said, This is a great mystery, but I speak to you actually concerning Christ and the church when he spoke about marriage and the relationship between husbands and wives. And so all of these stress marriage as the most vivid depiction of the relationship God is seeking. And in Hosea we see a prophet whose life illustrates this. So in chapter 1, God tells him to marry. He tells him to marry and he marries a woman named Gomer. Now that's maybe the first mistake, right? Do we marry women named Gomer still today? I... All right. So, he marries a woman named Gomer knowing that she's going to be unfaithful. 
to him. And the reason that he wants to describe this relationship to his people through these two is because it's the only way we're going to understand the deeply personal, binding nature of God's covenant with His people. It's covenant marriage between two people who seek to become one flesh. Now when that happens, when two people are trying to bind themselves together in such a way that they become one, it's really hard to keep anything from one another. You may be able to hide some things from your friends. You may be able to keep some things about yourself back from your children. Maybe you pulled the wool over your parents' eyes from time to time. Sooner or later, your spouse is going to know all about you. They're the person who, when you're just not feeling quite right, can identify it, can can notice it. They're the person who is going to be able to tell when you're not yourself. And that's because you've shared each other fully. You may have best friends that you've, that you've come close to in this way, or there may be people in your life that you've done this with, maybe in the church. But the spousal relationship is intended to be so. It's intended that we make ourselves vulnerable to one another so that we can get insight from someone who loves us unconditionally, that we, might, that we might grow and improve, that we might overcome obstacles, hurdles, troubles, and be able to uh, develop our character, develop our person into the person of Christ more fully. That's the intent of marriage. So God wants matrimony for us. Now for the married the spouse becomes the highest priority of any human relationship. It's the highest priority of any human relationship over parents, because a man shall leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife, even over children, which is very important in our culture today to understand that our spouses even are more important than our children, for our children feed off of the parent's relationship. They feed off of that love that's shared. They learn how to have a covenant relationship from parents. And so that must be the highest priority. When it is, we enjoy a a vitality, a strength that helps us to overcome any challenge that comes our way in the world. But when that relationship is weak, when it's suffering, it seems that no matter how good things are going in life, everything may be going well for you. But if that relationship at home is suffering, you're suffering. You go forth each day in weakness. You go forth alone when things aren't right at home. And you'll be unsatisfied, though the world brings you great treasures and uh, many pleasures, there'll be an unsat- a dissatisfaction with what it affords if that one vital relationship is hurting. So one's vitality springs forth from their spouse, and the labors are shared together with their spouse. And so God is, is saying to Israel, 
And he said this in the last chapter of the book of Hosea, chapter 14, verse 8. And we'll repeat it. And I've titled the sermon this, Your fruit is in me. Your fruit is in me. Your productivity, your, your flourishing, your, your growth, all of that, it's found in me. And yet they're going off and seeking it in other places. Friday evening, a man stood right here, David, and watched his bride come down the aisle in all her radiance and glory. And uh, he was visibly overcome with joy. That's one thing I love about weddings. Um, makes grown men cry. <laughs> Sometimes it's the first time. It's the first time for a lot of things. Sometimes it's the first time a grown man shaves right, on his wedding day. Sometimes it's the first time he's ever put on a bow tie you know, or a cummerbund. Do you even know what a cummerbund is, right? Some of us don't even probably know what those are. Um, it's the first time for a lot of things, but in all seriousness, marriage is, is life-changing because this person who you're committing to, you realize you're going to become one with, and they're going to, they're going to wield the power that is going to um, affect the greatest change in your life. They are. If, if no one thinks that you're smart and your spouse tells you, I think you're really smart, what are you going to believe? It might take a time or two, but you place a lot of weight in what your spouse says. If everyone thinks that you're just unattractive and ugly and your spouse says, you look really good in that outfit or you know, I really like that camouflage tie on you. It was a gift. I, I wore it for the gift giver that's here today. Um, you're going to put your weight in that, that remark that your spouse made. They're going to be the one that, that has the most effect on you. And so in Hosea, you can hear God saying, this is how I can affect your life. This is how I can change your life. I'm the one that is glowing with radiance at your beauty. I'm the one who, if you come to me, will have that greatest life-changing effect in this relationship. No one else but me. And everything and everyone else must come after me, he says, for we're married. He says, I won't hold anything from you. We're married. He also says, I don't want just a part of you. We're married. He says, I'm so passionate about you that I don't want to share you with anyone else. We're married. And I want to be more than mere acquaintances for occasional gatherings and temporary offerings and sacrifices. We're married. So, our relationship with God is like a marriage. And because we are men, it is oftentimes much like a bad marriage. It starts out that way as sinners. And even when we come into this covenant relationship, there are times when we, where we forsake our husband. And we need to learn this lesson. In chapter 1, look at chapter 1 with me. And just skim down through the first couple of verses to get that setting. Hosea marries a woman named Gomer who God said will absolutely break his heart because he wants the whole nation 
who has committed adultery against him to understand the gravity of what's happened. And so he employs Hosea to go above and beyond just being a messenger. He employs him to go beyond just being a preacher and actually live this life. And so the high calling of this prophet is to marry this woman whom he knows. He's been foretold that she'll be unfaithful to him. Yet this will be the weightiness of his heart that will carry the grievance of God to this people. So it begins with this marriage, and they have a child together whom God says to name Jezreel, which means scattered. And it depicts the manner in which the northern kingdom of Israel will be scattered amongst their enemies, and perhaps even the place where that decisive battle will take place. And they'll be scattered among nations whom they think love them. This is a recurring theme in the prophets as you read Isaiah in particular, and Hosea, and uh, Ezekiel. That Israel thinks that they're in love with other gods and that the other gods love them. And they're greatly mistaken. And God will actually turn them over to those lovers to see if truly they're loved or not. Or they won't listen to Him tell them differently. Soon after this first child is born, it appears from the language, the language of chapter uh, verse 6 in chapter 1, that the second child that is born to Gomer, a daughter, may not be Hosea's child. God says, I want you to name her Lo-Ruhamah, which means no mercy. And a third then, a son, is born to her. She conceived and bore a son, and God said, Hosea, I want you to call his name not mine. Loami, not mine. And so it appears that after the first child is born, that perhaps Gomer has gone off into adulterous affairs and is having children that are not her husband's. And then when we come to chapter 2, it just goes downhill from there. All of these picture the unfaithfulness of Gomer, but also of the nation, remember. As you're reading the one, and you absorb yourself into the nature of the marriage between Hosea and Gomer, you must keep in mind the relationship between God and His people. And when the language is used referring to the nation of Israel, we can also learn from that what is actually happening in the life of Gomer. In chapter 2, she basically hits the streets. We see in verse 2 language used that is it's legal language where he says, bring charges against your mother as if he's speaking to his children, as if he's justifying a divorce, perhaps, without saying it factually, perhaps this is where we are in the relationship, bring charges against her for she's not my wife and I'm not her husband. And she is basically on the streets now. She's on the streets. She thinks that she has found other lovers, but it soon is revealed to us that they're paying her for this love. They're paying her for one night at a time. And we see that brought out in verse 5, where she said, I'll go after my lovers who will give me my bread and my water, my wool and my linen, my oil and my drink. 
Therefore, behold, the Lord says, I'll hedge up your way with thorns and wall her in so that she cannot find her paths. Here's the love of a God toward His people who, as Kevin taught in the class this morning, rightly so, Kevin, I'm right with you on that, and I've been preaching that through adversity and suffering, God uses these things to turn His children back to Him. Maybe it's you as His child or the congregation as His children or a nation of people. He uses adversity and suffering, and He's walling her in. He's not allowing her to, to flourish in this lifestyle because He wants to turn her back. So He's bringing hardship upon the nation, and Gomer herself is experiencing hardship on the streets. And so she's starting to take pay and become a harlot, literally. The idea then is in verse 7. She'll chase her lovers, but not overtake them. Yes, she'll seek them, but she won't find them. In other words, she'll be continually pursuing love, and she'll never find it. She'll never find what she thinks she's looking for, where it's, it's better. This lifestyle is, is, is more fulfilling. It's more fun. I feel more loved by many lovers than I do by being committed in a relationship with one. And the Scripture says she never overtakes her lovers. She, she never gets a hold of them and gets them to just settle down and make commitments to her in true love. And she'll say, in the end, I'll go and return to my first husband, for then it was better for me than now. For she did not know, God says in verse 8, chapter 2, verse 8, she does not know that I gave her grain, new wine and oil, and multiplied her silver and her gold, which... They prepared for Baal. Before we're too harsh, as is typical of us when we're reading the flaws and faults of people in the Scriptures, before we're too harsh, we need to ask ourselves how often we receive blessings from God's hand and give credit to other lovers. We do this sometimes with things as simple as our food. We taste delicacies and eat good food and we thank, the, the, we thank the farmers and we compliment the chefs. And Sometimes we forget to think, where did the raw materials come from that were provided to these people? We might even forget to thank the Lord for our very sustenance. Sometimes I think we do this with our bodies, with, with the health of our bodies or the beautification of our bodies. In our culture, we see this all around us every day. The glorification of the, of the body and the glorification goes to that person who had actually nothing to do with the way they came forth from the womb. They were born with certain looks or certain uh, appealing features and we rob these things from the beauty of God and we attribute them to our own doing somehow. We exercise our bodies, we we try to get in top physical condition. We put that out for show many times. And we say, look what I have done with this body of mine. We do this with our work sometimes. We accomplish great things. Whether privately or publicly or in the workplace, we accomplish great things and we say, look what I have achieved with my mind and my hands. You see, we better be careful. When we see Gomer go after other lovers and say, my, this is where my sustenance comes from. And this is where my love comes from. Not to be too critical, 
Because oftentimes we do that. And I would even say with certainty we've all done that to some degree at some time. And if it's a habit, it must be recognized and repented of and be broken. That to God, we bring all of our glory. Without Him, we have nothing. We're upheld by the very words of His mouth, the Hebrew letter says. He upholds us by the word of His power. We exist right now because of Him. And so all of these things, all of these things belong to the glory of God. Our fruit is in God. But for Gomer, it's too late. She's already engaged in prostitution, receiving pay from her lovers. And when we get to chapter 3, we actually see that she has become the property of another, probably a pimp. Prostitution and the use of pimps in that organization was common in these pagan nations of old. And Israel did everything they could to copy these nations. To God's grief and to God's continual calling for repentance, they have, they have copied and emulated and simulated everything that they saw about the other nations that was sensual, that was fleshly, that brought them pleasures. She's probably the property of a pimp. She finds herself in quite a predicament. But the most shocking part of this is not that Hosea is experiencing God's heartache over his unfaithful bride. The most shocking part is you have to come. Look at chapter 3. Look what we just read. Look what Harold read with us. Look at the first verse. Then the Lord said to me when she was in this condition, go and love a woman. I'm sorry, I missed the most important word. Go again. Love a woman who's loved by a lover. Go again. Love a woman who's loved by a lover and is committing adultery just like the love of the Lord for the children of Israel who look to other gods and love the raisin cakes of the, of the pagans, the, those ritual worships where they served the dainties to those worshipers and they engaged in prostitution and the like. He says they loved it right down to the very pastries, danishes that were served and offered up to the gods. This is how I love the children of Israel. I want you to go again. Four times in the book of Isaiah, God calls out to Israel, and this phrase is used, For all this, Isaiah said, his anger is not turned away, yet his hand is outstretched still. How far is God willing to go to take us back? His hand is outstretched still in his anger. And then in chapter 65 of Isaiah, he says, I've stretched out my hand all day to a all day long to a rebellious people who provoke me continually to anger to my face. I stretched out my hand continually. At the end of the history of Israel in 2 Chronicles 36, we see and we'll read it in upcoming weeks as we come to conclusion of this time of the kings that God rose up early, early in the morning and sent His messengers, the prophets, to them over and over again so that they would nip these things before they became full-blown. But they forsook Him to such a degree 
that there was no remedy left but this picture, one of the saddest pictures in Scripture of God retracting His hand and giving them over to their lovers. We see that this is what happened in Romans chapter 1. God said that, or Paul said that God had to retract His hand to allow the Gentiles to give themselves fully over to their sin. In the church, when one fails to heed a loving call of repentance, when one feels, fails to heed the call of two or three to return from their sin, when they fail to heed the call of the church, they won't hear the church. Paul the Apostle, by the word of the Holy Spirit, instructs the church, you'll have to give them over to it for a time. Over to Satan. 1 Corinthians 5, for a time. But don't forsake them. Treat them as a brother. Treat them as a sister. Don't bid them Godspeed. Retract your hand, but you keep that door cracked. You keep that door open. If they walk in this church building, you make sure that they know this is the place of healing. This is the, the, the place where we pray together for forgiveness and find restoration in God. We see this all through the Scriptures, but here we see God retracting His hand and then teaching Hosea the Gospel. Here's the Gospel of Christ. Go again, and in her adultery, when she's at the lowest point of her life, like the prodigal son, He reaches out to her, and in the words of Isaiah, He said in chapter 54, verses 4-8, through Do not be afraid, for your Maker is your husband. The Lord of hosts is His name, for the Lord has called you like a woman forsaken and grieved in spirit, like a youthful wife when she was refused. For a mere moment I've forsaken you, but with great mercies I'll gather you. With a little wrath I hid my face for you from a moment, but with everlasting kindness I will have mercy on you, says the Lord your Redeemer. And so we see Him take her back to Himself. He is asked to make the first move in receiving his wife back to himself, who is currently in the throes of sin. Do you hear echoes of Romans 5, 8 there? But God demonstrated His own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. She finds herself in a precarious place. Her life choices have come full circle. And all those so-called lovers who didn't really love her are now trying to regain losses from the loss of her marketability. Perhaps this pimp is trying to recover losses. And so, in the nature of selling prostitutes, she likely stood there stripped bare and naked before those who were valuating her to, to buy her, and then the bidding begins. Four shekels. Five. Six. Six and a half. Seven. And amidst the bidding, she hears a familiar voice. What is he doing here? What is he doing here? It's her husband. It's Hosea. He's come and he's, he's going to bid the highest bid. He's going to bring her home, and he settles on the price of 15 shekels and a an homer and a half 
of barley. The price of a slave. The price of a slave. This is a picture of the full circle of a life of sin. Your sin will find you out. Even if you live in sin all your life and die thinking that you've found your pleasures, you'll find in the day that you meet the Lord that you've been deceived and that it will come around in full. In God's grace, perhaps, He chose Gomer because she needed His redemptive mercy. You think, why would He do this to this poor woman? Why did He pick Hosea? These are two who get the... They're in the front row of the picture of the gospel being played out. And so, both of them experience the gospel that is going to come in the form of a true bridegroom. What could she ever do to earn Hosea's love back again? Absolutely nothing. But before we were born, does this sound familiar? God was in Christ reconciling the world to Himself, not imputing their trespasses to them. And so Paul says in like manner, he says, we implore you on Christ's behalf to be reconciled to God, for He made Him who knew no sin to become sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. Jesus Christ came and purchased us off of that auction block when we were naked and we were exposed in sin before God and we realized there wasn't a shred of dignity in it, there was no fruit in it, He bought us back. And we went home with Him. And so Hosea takes her home. And they live for many days together. And he doesn't even propose to go into her for a time. He says, you'll know no man, and that in the original language means including myself, you'll know no man for many days, and I will also treat you the same way. See, he was restoring her dignity. We met a couple in Switzerland, who as I was studying this week, it just hit me upside the head like a brick. This is the couple that we met in Switzerland, are members of the church. They did not always see things religiously the same way. In fact, at a young age, uh, this gentleman became an infidel. He was led to believe that there was no God. He was led to believe that religion was the problem. He was led to believe that the church was a bunch of hypocrites. He had seen it with his own eyes. He had gone into uh, uh, church assemblies until he was 14 with his grandmother until he said, I cannot do this to myself anymore. I don't believe it. But he met a woman from South Africa. South Africa. And she was a Christian. And he became enraptured with her. But they always had this difference in worldview. And her family adamantly, adamantly, in front of him even, he said, said, don't do this. Don't marry this man. They thought, surely, he'll lead her astray. And so many times, that is what happened. They had just cause for that. And she married him. 
And so for years, he made a commitment to her, if you marry me, I will go to church with you. And he sat in church, suffering through it, but picking up bits and pieces from uh, members of the church whom he became very curious about. He became very curious about their sincerity as he began to see into the lives of some of them and see their real faith being practiced. So he had questions. But as was his nature, he liked to pose argumentation. And one night he told us, uh, Sam and I in particular were standing and talking with him. One night he said, we had an argument of all arguments. He said, I was going to win. I was going to express my point that, that this is all a farce and that she needed to let go of it. And he said, we didn't believe in the book of Ephesians, but the principle of let not the sun go down upon your wrath was kind of part of our family. We argued things out until they were done. We didn't go to sleep and drag it out for a week. And so he said, we stayed up till five in the morning until she had the audacity to go to bed. He said, I wasn't done. I had not, I had not won over my point yet. And she went to bed. He said, it was Sunday morning. <laughs> it was Sunday morning, about 7.30. They're on their way to church. He wrestled with that whole idea too, but he said, I made a commitment. I'm going to take her to church. And he said, I broke the silence in the ride in the car ride on the way to church, he said, so are we going to be okay or what? And she said, yes, we're going to be okay. And he said, how do you know we're going to be okay? And she said, because I've already forgiven you. And he had to pull the car over. And Sam and I were tearing up with him as he shared the story. He had to pull the car over. He couldn't drive. Cried like a baby, he said. But he said, I realize that that's what I was missing all along. That I needed forgiven for my vileness, in his word. Um, for my obscenity, were the words he used. I needed to be forgiven. I was ashamed inside. But his pride made him carry that all through his life until he actually was exposed to the gospel through his wife. Doesn't that sound like 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 1? And so that morning he went to worship. And immediately after realizing that the forgiveness of his wife is really what he was seeking, he drew the comparison that this is what Christianity is about. This is the big deal. This is what I didn't get. I didn't get the gospel. I didn't get the forgiveness and the grace and the mercy. I, all, I only saw the legality of the law. I, I, I never could see and feel the importance of this. And so he became a Christian that morning. Isn't that a tremendous story? Became a Christian that morning. And Paul in chapter 7 of Romans, verse 4, said that the cross is where sin dies. And he said, so that you may be married to another, to him who was raised from the dead, that we should bear fruit to God. There's that word again. That you may be married to Christ, he died. That you may be separated from Moses and marry another and bear fruit to God. This is the true bridegroom. This is the one who was coming who would restore God's people Israel 
to the rightful place with Him in marriage covenant. And this is the same bridegroom who is calling out to you, even gave His own life to show you, I will take you in. But we must let go of our pride. We must repent. We must confess our adulteries and be willing to let Him take us and wash us from those things and give us our integrity and our dignity back. If that's you this morning that needs that, I pray that you'll come while we sing this song.